So Peter, James, and John climbed a mountain with Jesus. At the top of the mountain, the three of them witnessed Jesus shining brightly, and they saw two figures talking to Jesus. The disciples realized the two were Moses and Elijah, although how they knew that exactly, given the fact there were no pictures they could go to, we're not quite sure, but they realized it. A voice spoke from heaven, and these three were literally knocked down, flat on the ground by the experience. Their emotions were likely somewhere between overwhelming awe and utter terror. The moment passed. The glory faded. And Jesus picked them up and led them down the mountain with the instruction not to tell anyone until after the resurrection. <laughs> and I have to wonder if the three of them weren't thinking, who are we going to tell Jesus? Who would believe us? Elijah. Elijah was one of the figures on the mountain. He was one of the great prophets of Israel. Few of his words survive, but we have the stories of his deeds. His career was marked by constant conflict with King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Jezebel was not an Israelite by birth. And when she married Ahab, she convinced him to adopt the worship of Baal Melkart. Not only did Jezebel introduce her own religion, she began systematically killing off prophets who served Yahweh. We learn in 1 Kings 18 that the priests for Baal and the associated goddess Asherah numbered 850. How were all these priests supported? The scripture says they ate at Jezebel's table, which means this had become a state sponsored religion. And who paid for this? Well, the people paid for this. Priests who were followers of Yahweh were supposed to be supported by voluntary sacrifices and gifts brought by the people. But Ahab and Jezebel had introduced a crushing taxation system to support themselves and the religious elite. Just another example of the kinds of injustice that happened during Ahab's reign. Ahab had a man killed so he could seize his vineyard. Elijah's conflict with Ahab and Jezebel was a conflict over the rights of the common people. One time, Elijah held a contest with the prophets of Baal. They both offered a sacrifice on a mountain to see which god would accept their sacrifice and send fire from heaven to consume it. The prophets of Baal had no luck despite praying and dancing and doing everything they could think of to appease their God. Elijah offered his sacrifice, twice doused with water to add a theatrical flair. He prayed and God sent fire to consume it. Impressive. So far, so good. But then Elijah ordered the prophet, the, the people, to grab the prophets of Baal, those priests, and he took those priests to a nearby stream and slaughtered them. Now, initially, we might be tempted to think, good, they got what they deserved. Except that if God had wanted those 
priests and prophets of Baal killed, couldn't God have sent the fire to consume them? Elijah did what we so often do in our world. He answered violence and injustice with more violence. And shortly thereafter, he found himself on the run fleeing from Jezebel's retribution. Elijah, as a prophet, was an advocate for the rights of the common citizens of Israel over the religious and political elite. He stood on the side of the poor. But he also resorted to violence, which in the long run only made the situation worse for himself and for the people. Moses, Moses was on the mountain too, and he's an even more obvious advocate of human rights. He didn't come to that role easily. He was raised in Pharaoh's household, but those popular representations that make him out as a competing prince of Egypt to Pharaoh's son don't get it right. He was more of a pet Israelite adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. His growing up, if we use modern psychological terms, gave him a serious case of cognitive dissonance, which resulted in him intervening in the beating of an Israelite slave and the murder of an Egyptian overseer. Moses had to flee for his life, and he fled to a country called Midian. And there Moses stayed until he was 80 years old. He formed new family ties. He took up a new profession, shepherding. And then God called him to be one of the greatest human rights advocates the world had ever seen. God gave him this succinct mission. Lead an entire nation out of slavery. Moses was a great leader. He brought the Israelites out of Egypt, pursued by an army. He dealt with constant complaining, threats of revolt, and idolatrous behavior. But even he had his less than ideal moments. In a rage, he broke the first set of tablets on which the commandments had been written by God when the people had made a golden calf to worship. And following this incident, Moses rallied his fellow Levites to kill people randomly throughout the camp. He told the Levites God wanted them to do this, even though the Bible never mentions that particular word to Moses from God. He forgot that God, who had delivered the people from Egypt, could certainly smite the people if God saw fit. There's another incident with Moses that we read, and we might think it's a minor matter, but the biblical record rates it very differently. Twice the people complained of great thirst. They had no water. The first time, God commanded Moses to strike a rock with his staff, and the water flowed out. The second time, God told Moses, just go and speak to the rock. But Moses struck the rock anyway. And the water did flow, but God told Moses he'd never enter the promised land since he was disobedient. And the context does make you wonder if Moses' temper, again, isn't what did him in. What we see when we see God's glory shining through Jesus on that mountaintop 
are two powerful leaders who firmly stood on the side of the poor and the oppressed. And they are also deeply flawed humans who struggle to make the best choices, reacting with anger and violence when they see wrong and injustice in the world. And I actually find their presence and who they are to be an incredibly hopeful sign. Are we capable of opening our eyes and seeing the plight of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized of the world? Well, God has been making that particular miracle happen again and again in the life of the church. It's happened to us from time to time here. It often involves our lives being shaken up by difficult circumstances or unpleasant experiences. But God has been opening the eyes of blind Christians again and again and again since Pentecost. And we certainly meet the second requirement, or at least I can say I do. I'm forever making the wrong choice, reacting with anger to situations, doing one thing when God told me to do something else. I've got that deeply flawed box checked, solid. So that means I've got a chance, too, to see God's glory. The disciples who saw God's glory that day, they would see it again. They glimpsed it in the presence of the risen Christ who told them to go in the world and care for others. They glimpsed it at Pentecost when God gave them a voice to speak a message of care for the world that was understood by people from all over the Roman Empire. They glimpsed God's glory when the lame were healed, the dead raised. They glimpsed it when Samaritans and Greeks and Romans became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. It's interesting that the early church historically found its message gained the most acceptance among the poorest. The early disciples became advocates for them by feeding and teaching them Jesus' command to love others, even those who oppressed them. These urban poor residents of the Roman Empire became the basis of the early church. And that early church, while often making mistakes, just like Moses and Elijah before them, changed the face of the Roman Empire. And it became the ship that carried forth this stunning and dangerous message of Jesus. And we've inherited that message. The transfiguration story teaches us this incredible message and mission, the care for the least and the poorest and the weakest is carried forth by sinful and error-prone humans. That's us. Along the way, Jesus takes us to mountaintops and allows us to see for a moment the glory of God. We taste, we glimpse, we see God's glory in people fed and prisoners who are spiritually and physically free in students forming relationships, and freedom gained by the oppressed. God showed his glory on the mountaintop that day through the life of his son, who set aside power and glory to stand with the poorest and the oppressed. And God's son did not grab power and glory. Instead, he's followed his father's will all the way to the cross, he chose a nonviolent path, ordering his disciples to put away their swords and telling Pilate, you know, if I wanted to, I could call down armies. 
but I won't do it. Instead, Jesus followed the path of love for humanity. He trusted his Father and showed how the world can be changed. That letter from Peter warns against myths. We might be tempted to think of this at first blush as being about believing we can see God's glory like Peter did. But Peter's warning has far more to do with those kinds of myths that Elijah believed and a myth that even Moses believed at times. It's a myth that we can make the world right through power and violence. Chris Brammer describes the alternate path of truth. He says God's rule doesn't come about when we are commanding and orchestrating things. It happens when God works through us to lead and guide others in creating a better place for each other. His choice of the word orchestrating brought this metaphor to mind to me. I may be a wonderful first chair musician able to play music that mesmerizes others in an orchestra. But if I'm doing it in my own way and doing it in a way that, that is other than the direction of the conductor, I will certainly ruin that piece. When we grab power for ourselves to fix the world, we're ignoring our conductor. The disciples who'd been following Jesus had been learning about love and obedience for three years before they climbed that mountain with Jesus. They'd been learning how to live out the words from the Sermon on the Mount. They'd been learning about feeding hungry people and healing suffering people and preaching hope to oppressed people. Jesus had been teaching them how to show God's love. And that's the path to seeing God's glory. The path to seeing the light of God's love shining through Jesus. There's a line from Les Miserables that uh, a lot of people don't say Victor Hugo wrote. It shows up in the English musical and movie. But I think it points us in the right direction. To love another person is to see the face of God. Each day we can seek to love others. Some days we'll do it amazingly well. And other days we will stumble and ignore God's direction and try to fix the world ourselves. But God will always forgive and put us back on the right track. God works constantly to open our eyes to those who desperately need God's love. And when we respond to this call, we will see Jesus shining through. We will see God's glory. Amen.